You ready for the word of the Lord? All right. You going to go with me? Okay, I'm counting on that. As we regathered last week, I spoke to you from this pulpit about the need for the church to war against the, the spirit, the processes, and the powers of Satan and Antichrist perspectives. And we were reminded of that scripture that we know so well in Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We also talked about the fact that the enemy would love nothing more than for the church to be divided over non-eternal matters and how easily we can do that, and that serves his purpose. Also, that he would be well served if we turn against each other and we don't learn how to operate in the spirit of love, in the spirit of unity, and uh, the acceptance of, of one another. And when we say that, we're bold enough to come right on out and say that includes Republicans to Democrats, Democrats to Republicans, white people to black people, black people to white people, and every other thing that is dividing us and is so pronounced in these days. The challenge to us, I'm honestly not preaching the whole sermon again, but the challenge to us, I am using it for, to lay a foundation. Our challenge is to remember the words of Jesus when He said this to us. The world will know that we are Christians by our love for one another, by our love. We talked about excelling in love and what that looks like. And that if we can operate and live in that kind of love, then this moment of time that we're living in, which is so filled with uh, intensity and uh, difficulty, it will and can be the finest hour for the church of the Lord Jesus. Underpinning all of that is an understanding that uh, a full awareness that the enemy is fighting us. He's fighting like he's never fought before. And two of his first used weapons are accusation and division. And if we're not careful, if we're not awake, and if we're not mindful of his devices, then the church will dissolve into a powerless impotent agency which panders to the spirit of the age in which we live, and we will ultimately become useless. But that is not what the church of Jesus is called to be. Can I get an amen this morning? So with all of that fresh in our minds, and I, I review that quickly because it is foundational to what I want to share with you, and I, uh, I really want to kind of build upon that and take it just a little bit further. I'm going to come at the idea again, but from a completely different perspective. And to do so, I take you this morning to a familiar passage in the Gospel of Matthew, if you have your Bible or your device with you, Matthew chapter 17, Matthew 17, and I'm going to start with verse 14, that which is a familiar passage to you. Matthew 17, verse 14, <clears throat> says this, at the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus, and he said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures, is the way this version says. Your version may say that he, uh, he's epileptic, or it may say, actually, use the word lunatic. Uh, our culture sees that word, and, and it's used in several different ways, but I just want you to know the actual definition for lunatic, which is it's used in this passage here, is one whose actions and manner are marked by extreme eccentricity or recklessness. That's what a, a, the definition of lunatic, and that's what he's saying. Have mercy on my son. 
That's what he's demonstrating, extreme recklessness. And he suffers terribly. He often just falls into the fire or he falls into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Now, I want you to understand clearly here what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that he wants to be rid of his disciples. That's not what he's communicating here when you, when you study the passage. This is Jesus saying, how long must I be with you before you will understand? How long is it going to take before you get it? Before you really, the, 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 the eyes of your understanding are open and you understand what I'm teaching you and, and the principles. That's what he's saying. And then Jesus said at the end of verse 17, he says, so bring the boy here to me. So then Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy and it left him. From that moment, the boy was well. Afterward, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we do that? How come you could do that and we couldn't? Why couldn't we cast out that demon? And Jesus said, you don't have enough faith, he told them. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Say it with me. Nothing you can do better than that. Nothing. So I pray that the Lord will add His blessing to the reading of His Word today. No sooner had Jesus come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, as we see here, or what is sometimes referred to as the heavenly glory, that He was confronted with an earthly problem and a practical demand. And I, uh, I kind of know what that feels like, and I bet you do too. You might be in a time of studying the Word, or you might have uh, your, your favorite worship material on, and you're caught up in the presence of Jesus, and your heart is kind of laid bare, and you're, you're, you're just open to what God is wanting to say to you and speak to you, and you're feeling the presence of the Lord. Right about that moment, someone hollers from the other end of the house, did you take the trash out yet? Did you, did you feed the cat? Did you do this? It's just so that feeling of being caught up in the euphoric sense of the presence of God, and yet you're brought right back down to reality. How many know what I'm talking about? Well, Matthew described this boy, this epileptic boy that, that uh, was brought to the disciples in the absence of Jesus. They couldn't see, he couldn't see him at that, at that point, and so uh, the, the father brought him to the disciples. And Matthew describes the boy by a Greek verb, which I totally could not pronounce in the first service. Let's see if I can this service. But this Greek verb, it literally means to be moonstruck. Moonstruck means to be deranged supposedly by the influence of the moon or craze. That's what this word means. Give me just a second. I want to take a deep breath. Selene Adzomai. Let's see if you can say it. That was terrible. Surely you can do it better than that. The word, though, means it speaks of a lunatic. Someone who's been crazed, someone whose behavior is odd, they are moonstruck. And it was inevitable in that age, the father attributed the boy's condition, his own son's condition, to the malign influence of evil spirits. 
When you see your own child behaving in such an uh, irrational way, throwing himself into the fire, throwing himself into the water, the boy was a danger to himself. He was a danger to everyone else. And so surely there had to be a sigh of relief come as Jesus appeared. And, and then Jesus comes and takes hold of the situation, which uh, was getting completely out of hand. And with one Strong, stern word. He bade that demon be gone and the boy was cured. I'm telling you, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's lots of significance in this story for us. I, I wish I had time to, uh, to give all of them that are at least alive in my heart. But I, I, I'm trying to get to a specific point today. But one of the things I do want us to see is this. You've got to be moved by the faith of this boy's father. You have to at least acknowledge it. What's taking place in his heart? He has a son who things are not well for. This is a son who is not thriving. And we're all designed as parents for our children to thrive. And it, it's not going well. And so, but he comes with absolute faith. And even though the, the disciples had been given the power to cast out devils, Matthew 10, 1, they had been given that power. Here was a case, though, where they had very publicly and very obviously failed. They could not do it. But in spite, this is where his faith comes so obvious, but in spite of the failure of the disciples, this father still never doubted in the name and the power of Jesus. It was as if he said, just let me, let me get to Jesus if I can get to him, I know my problems will be solved. I know this need will be met. And there's something very, very poignant about his approach and also something that's very universal about it. And this won't feel very good, but it is the truth. There's lots of people, and you know some just as well as I, who feel that the church, those who call themselves followers of Christ, the professed disciples of Jesus in our day and generation, there are these people who feel that the church has failed and is powerless to deal with what happens in mankind today, is powerless to deal with their situation. And yet, those same people, in the back of their minds, there is this feeling, if I could just get beyond the human followers of Christ, if I could just get beyond the facade of church order and even what I perceive to be the failure of the church, if I could get to Jesus, I know I would receive the things that I need. Now, it is at one and the same time, both our condemnation and our challenge, that even now, Though many have lost their faith in the church, they have not lost their faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Bethesda, I want to present a scripture to you that you know so well, and I want to bring a different angle to it, and it's this. Isaiah 59, 19, the last part of the verse, says this. When the enemy comes in like a flood, say it with me, when the enemy comes in, the Spirit. Let's do it one more time. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him or will raise up a standard against him. Can I just present an idea to you that maybe you've not thought of before? It says that the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a what? A standard. The standard referred to here is actually the people of God. 
Now hear me. A more literal translation would look like this. When the enemy comes in like a flood, and how many have ever felt that? When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up the people of God against that enemy. In other words, the church has a responsibility as a people of God to push back the darkness. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, you are the standard. You and I are the standard. If you are a son or daughter of God, you are the standard that the Lord will raise up to make a divine difference because you will have power to stand against the onslaught of darkness and to push it back. Somebody ought to shout hallelujah for that. We see the instruction of Jesus that if you have faith, even just the size of a mustard seed, even though something seems to be entrenched, even though it seems to be unmovable, even though you might be facing something that seems large and overwhelming and intimidating. And I'm going to tell you this, when I look at our racial tension in our world today and what's happening, and I really delve into it at the, at the level I've been able to see, and it looks so complex, it looks, it looks multi-layered, it looks uh, completely overwhelming, that there's not any kind of an easy answer. But I know this, we are allowed, we are allowed to come to God in prayer and say, Lord, we're saying to you, move this mountain, and when you come in the power of prayer to save this mountain, move from here to there, it will be moved. Because the Lord is calling the church to be the standard that is raised up to fight the enemy when it comes in like a flood. Somebody say amen. And nothing, the scripture says that we read today, nothing will be impossible to you. Nothing will be impossible to you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How can I be the standard against the enemy? Little old me, little old weak me, how can I be the standard against the enemy? Because you're part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're part of the blood-washed, blood redeemed of the, of the Lord. And you therefore have power in prayer to say, mountain, you move from here to there. Now, when Jesus was spoke, speaking about removing mountains... This was a phrase that was well-known in Jewish thought. The Jewish people would have been very familiar with this idea. We look at it literally. I propose to you he's speaking metaphorically. Here's what was in Jewish thought. A great teacher who could really expound and interpret Scripture, who could explain and resolve difficulties, was always known as an uprooter or even a pulverizer of mountains. That's what they're saying here. So to tear up, to uproot, to pulverize mountains were all regular phrases used for removing difficulties or moving mountains. Jesus never meant this to be taking, taken physically and literally because, I mean, let's be honest, how often have you looked at Mount Rushmore and said, you know, I need that to move from here to there. We don't do that. It is me metaphorical. But what Jesus did mean was this, if you have enough faith and it doesn't take much, the size of a grain of mustard seed. If you have enough faith, these difficulties can be solved and even the hardest task can be accomplished because it is faith in God which is the instrument that enables men and women to remove the mountains of difficulty which block their path. Faith in God expressed through the power of prayer. Does the church agree with me this morning? There is incredible power in the prayers of God's people when we are surrendered to the will of God, even for something as complicated and complex as the racial divide we're experiencing today.
And the redeemed of the Lord should be asking this, what is our purpose on earth? Why are we left here? What does God desire to do through us? What can He do through us? Are we destined to simply allow darkness to invade our borders and surrender our sons and daughters to it? Is that, what, is that our lot in life? Or is there something we can do? Is there a power available for us to discover in this last moment of time? And I do believe we are living in the last period of time. Here's what I absolutely believe, Bethesda, with all of my heart. It's a scripture found in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. Say it with me. The glory. Do you believe that? Does that mean it's going to be completely different? We don't know what all will be different. I know this. Will we continue to see divine healing? Absolutely. We have and we will. It's the Word of the Lord. Will we continue to see deliverance? I have every confidence we will continue to see deliverance. I think we're going to see more and more deliverance from addictions, more and more deliverance from oppressive spirits, more deliverance from depression, more deliverance from anxiety. And I am absolutely certain and praying with all of my heart that God will deliver us as a nation from the sin of racism, even as eyes are being opened in this very hour. And you know what else I believe? I believe it's going to have to start in the church. If the government could have done something about it, it would have been done by now. If society could have done something, it would have been done by now. It's going to have to come from the people of God who are willing to open their hearts to what God is saying, what God is doing, what God desires in the earth, what he wants his church to be, unified, excelling in love. It's going to have to start in the church. Are you with me this morning, Bethesda? For we are to be the standard which God raises up against the flood of the enemy. That's what we're called to be and called to do. And when we do that, can God answer it? Can God do that? Of course he can. Uh, that's your answer. Of course he can. Say it. Can God do it? I believe the glory of the latter house will also include healing for our marriages. I can't tell you exactly why in praying through this thing about racism, it also brings to mind the difficulties that are behind closed doors in our own homes and in our marriages and things that are not as healthy as they should be. But I believe the glory of the, the, of the latter house is going to include true healing for our marriages. Somehow, by the Spirit of God, who can do all things wonderfully well, who can do things we never dreamed of or imagined that could happen, a huge mountain in front of us that's intimidating to us, we will learn the value of speaking kindly to our spouse. We're going to learn how to speak words of encouragement to our spouse and to our loved one. We're going to speak words of edification. I believe that's what's going to be part of the glory of the latter house and stop our fleshly carnal tendency to talk down to our spouse and be degrading and derogatory. I am praying that godly peace and godly love will fill our hands. Can God do that? Will there be pushback? Sure. Yeah, there will be. But can God by his spirit raise up a standard by raising up his people to push back the darkness brought on to us by the flood of the enemy? Can God do that? And yes, there'll be pushback. But you know what? I've read somewhere that it says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In fact, look what he did with 120 ordinary people who gathered in the upper room 
on a day when Roman thought and Roman culture and Roman might and the Roman scorn of the ways of God was threatening to overpower the entire known world at that time. But all that God needed to stand up against that, all of the might and power of Rome, all that God needed to stand up was 120 common, ordinary people who were willing to have their hearts invaded by an extraordinary God. That's all God needed. People who were willing to say yes. People who knew how to stand up and said, I'm in this, Lord. I'm not partially committed. I'm fully committed. I'm in this. I believe the glory of the latter house will include a new and deeper understanding of patience and love and kindness to our fellow brothers and our sisters. Is there a soft amen even for that? I'm going to ask you to look at Jesus from the context of the perspective of our text this morning and see what happened. As I mentioned earlier, it was straight from the, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, glorious moment, straight from the glory of the mountaintop, he's met with human suffering. He was brought down, back down to earth pretty quickly, straight from hearing the voice of God. He came to hear the persistent demands of human need that was crying out to him. Jesus, save me. Jesus, have mercy on my son. But he is showing us that the most Christ-like people in the world are those who never find other people a nuisance. I'm preaching myself straight under conviction this morning. You know what, Bethesda, let's talk about it. It's easy to feel religious and holy and, and Christian and spiritual in the moment of prayer and meditation. It's easy to feel close to God when the world is shut out and we're having our, our, private, you know, our, our, our private time and our, uh, with the Lord. But you know what? That is not Christianity. That is escapism. That's what that is. Let me tell you what real Christianity is. Real Christianity is to rise from our knees before God to meet other people and the problems of the human situation. Real Christianity is to draw strength from God in order to give it to others. Real Christianity involves meeting God in the secret place and meeting men and women in the marketplace. That's all part of it. Real Christianity means taking our own needs to God, not that we may have peace and quiet and undisturbed comfort, but that we may be enabled graciously and effectively and powerfully to meet the needs of others. That's what Christianity is. And I know that there are some who would try to say, as the psalmist did, oh, that I had wings of a dove, that I could fly away and avoid all of this, uh, all this annoyance and all of this frustration. I wish I just had wings of a dove and could fly away. But you know what? Wings of a dove, that even, even that statement, it's escapism. It's not for Christians who would follow their master in going about doing good. The story we've read from our text in Matthew 17 begins with a prayer. A prayer by this father with a deranged son. A man came and knelt before Jesus, and he prayed this prayer. Lord, have mercy on my son. This man was pleading with Jesus because he had become aware that something had gripped his next generation, his son. Now listen to me carefully. His hope for tomorrow had been invaded by a demonic power. His future was in jeopardy. And I'm wondering this morning, Bethesda, really wondering as your pastor, how aware are we 
of what is gripping our next generation? What has its stronghold on our next generation? And I'm talking about your children and your grandchildren, my children, my grandchildren. How concerned are we for our sons and daughters and our grandchildren? I'm praying that there comes an awakening in the hearts of the church, just like the prayer prayed by that father when he pled with Christ, Lord, have mercy. Lord, I, Lord, would you have mercy on our sons and daughters? For we see that something has gripped the next generation. And all we can do is call upon you. That's all we have. We're watching them, uh, in, in a sense, we're watching them have their own kind of seizure and suffering terribly because sometimes they fall into the fire and sometimes they fall into the water and it's happening right before our very eyes and they are unaware, they seem to be completely unaware of the danger when it's right before them. God help us. Let your mercy be, be upon us. And the Father says, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Sadly, you know what, church? The traditional religion of our day is not powerful enough to confront the lunacy facing our next generation. It's not enough. Happy little services that are meaningless, people who just come and go through the motions of, of some sort of religiosity, that is not going to be enough to break the power that is upon our next generation. And that's the very kind of powerless religion Jesus was talking about and he was frustrated with in our text. And he was talking about the kind of religion that loves titles, the kind that loves position, the kind that loves power, the type of religion that wants the favor of the people more than it wants the favor of God. God, give us leaders in the church who are much more concerned about the favor of God even than they are the favor of the people. And I can tell you, as one who stands that position, that's not easy. God, give us strength in the pulpits to preach the Word of God. Give us the power and the authority to speak boldly what the gospel says to the people and give them ears to hear it and then walk it out and do it. And God, help us in this generation to get away from thinking we can live this Christian life all for ourselves, all bubbled in. May God give us spiritual eyes to see what those only with natural, who only have natural eyes cannot see. And for us to have a heart to understand things that people who are living only for themselves, that they, they can't understand. They don't get it. Give us a heart to, to see those things and to understand those things. And church, I'm telling you, more than ever before, I believe this. It's so obvious to me. The Lord Jesus is calling us away from our casual approach. The day of casual approach to Christianity is no longer there's no place for it any longer because the casual, casual approach of this hour will lead to little, if any, victory in our crisis time. It's going to require of us self-denial. It's going to require of us faith-filled prayer to bring freedom to those who are captives in this season of darkness that has come upon this day. Is it going to be easy? No, it is not going to be easy. But I am suggesting that if we will do it God's way, that these mountains that stand before us, the difficulties we are facing in our society, everything that, we are, that is right in front of us today, they can move. These mountains can move, and we can live to see a spiritual awakening again in our nation. How many want to once again see a spiritual awakening in this nation? Our passage that we've read, this, it finishes by saying this, nothing will be impossible to you. Say it with me. I tell you what, 
I am, my faith is so stirred this morning as I consider what God is wanting to do and is doing in this hour. I know it's been a strange, unusual time. It has not been without having God's eye on it and his purpose on it and his plan on it. But I'm telling you, I know that God is saying to the church today, nothing will be impossible to you. Even that which looks right now that you walked in here with this morning to be impossible, it is not impossible. And I don't know about you, but I'm praying and believing for one last outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon this land. I'm praying for one final outpouring before Christ returns to the earth. One last great ingathering of lost souls. One last pushing away of this cloud of darkness in our society. One last season of rejoicing and dancing again in the house of God because we're rejoicing in Him. And I'm believing for the day when we will openly declare as we've seen God move in our midst and there's a true spiritual awakening amongst us, amongst us in the church and in this land, things that surprise us in the way that it happens. I'm praying that we will be able to stand and say, only the Lord could have done this. No pastor could have done it. No evangelist could have done it. No church on its own could have done this. Only the Lord could, could have done what we are seeing with our eyes. It's the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I'm believing God one more time for a glorious church without spot or wrinkle washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm believing God one more time for all the people of God who today are hiding in dens and caves and holes in the rocks and wherever they're hiding. I'm praying for them to come out and to begin to join us in this battle of prayer one more time. I'm believing God for a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit that will open the mouth of everyone, causing them to shout the name of Jesus. How about you? I'm believing God for spiritual authority again in our generation, that we can stand no matter how weak we may feel, no matter how weak we may even appear to be, but we will stand with the power of God in our mouth declaring, I speak to you, mountain, in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, and you must move by the power of Jesus. I'm believing that in these last days, God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, I believe that our sons and our daughters will prophesy. Oh, God, let it be. I believe that on our servants and handmaidens, God's Holy Spirit will come. Both men and women will rise up. Men will preach. Women will preach. Men will speak against the powers of hell and cast them into the sea. And women will see their dead raised back to life again. Hallelujah. I believe it with all of my heart. I want to see it with everything within me. Are you with me this morning, church? This is not the time for casual religion. This is not the time for business as usual in the church. It is not. We are being called to a higher level through all of this that's taking place. Part-time commitment to Christ will amount to nothing. This is the time for the fully committed believers to step forward and openly carry the banner of Christ. I believe our God will once again have a people of prayer again. Oh, let it be said in this house that we are a people of prayer. We are a people who know how to call upon the name of the Lord in even our greatest difficulties. Our God will have a people who are simple enough to believe that when we come to Christ, He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by God's Spirit within us, we have power to tread on serpents and on scorpions and of over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall harm us. Hallelujah. I believe that as the church of Jesus Christ, the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against us. 
The devil may think he has locked in our children behind the iron gates of darkness, but we have the power in prayer to command those gates to open for light and life to go in, to deliver them in the name of Jesus. We have the power in prayer. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that power is in the name of Jesus. It's still the name that's above every other name. Stand to your feet and put your hands together. And let's give him praise and glory in the house of God today. Come on, do it right now.